Welcome back to another episode of the Brothers Book Club Podcast Highlights Edition, which will not be the formal title of this, but, you know, we'll roll with it for now. You are currently listening to our 11 through 20 episodes highlights. This is on our Penguin Classic series where we are reviewing 80 Penguin Classics. That is our aim and our goal for now. Um, until that monumental task is done, that's what we're going to be doing, putting out one book review per week so you, our listeners, can either get a recommendation or get an avoidance recommendation. This episode, as I've already alluded to, will be clips from our 11 through 12 episodes of the Brothers Book Club review show. Our hope with this is to give sort of new listeners maybe just a hour-long or so overview of the tone of the show, the kind of things we discuss, our approach to, to book reviews and recommendations, and, you know, some of the clips are just fun and funny, and some are just tangents, so nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, I'm going to do this episode the same way I did the 1 through 10 highlights episode, where I will briefly introduce the first five books I'll give just some comments and brief thoughts about each one, and then I'll roll into the uh, highlight episode clips from those five. After those five are done, I will then do the same thing, introduce the next and final five, and again in this episode we'll be doing ten total books, highlights from each. Um, I think you'll probably notice if you listen to the first Best Of episode or the Highlights Collection, I think we get a lot better in these second 10. Uh, you know, the show is just, we've become more used to each other and the rapport is a little better. I, you know, we've had our entire lives to work on it, being brothers and all, but yeah, there's always room for improvement. Um, so thanks for listening again. If this is your first episode ever, we're incredibly flattered to have you, you know, tell all your friends and coworkers, etc., family members. We make a tremendously free gift, you know, for any occasion. Uh, and let's get right into the show. Okay, so the first five episodes for this Highlights Collection uh, are going to start off with probably my favorite of the entire 20 we've read so far. It was an author I'd never heard of, Kenko, uh, and from uh, a collection, A Cup of Sake Beneath the Cherry Trees, that I had never even heard of, and I really loved getting a surprise. I think I've heard of, I wouldn't even say a majority of the 80 authors we'll be reading, um, but definitely quite a few, and so this was a wonderful surprise. It's nonfiction his kind of philosophy about life. I know Ryan really loved it, too. We found some really incredible insights in that one. That will be followed by another nonfiction work, kind of a recommendation um, by Baltazar Gracian. You know, I'm going to stop trying the names. <laughs> we talk about this a lot in the episodes. We definitely try and learn them for the episodes themselves, but for this purpose, all right, people, let's just keep it moving. Um, anyway, his uh, collection is called How to Use Your Enemies, sort of a real politic kind of advice, pretty pragmatic advice about how to live and how to, you know, manipulate powerful people. I, I think we both thought it was interesting. I know Ryan was pretty struck by some of the advice, so um, there will be a clip from that. Following that is, I think we both agree, our least favorite of the read so far, and that is The Eve of St. Agnes, which is a collection of poetry by Keats. It's Victorian. It's dense. We'll kind of get into it. I just can't fathom many modern readers who aren't scholars enjoying it too much. Uh, the style is just incredibly foreign almost at this point um but anyway we'll get into that on the pod two more to go uh next will be woman much missed woman much missed is a poetry collection by an english author 
fairly interesting. I think it was a little muted. We kind of came away thinking it was a little quieter than we thought for a, a kind of collection about mourning uh, your your loved one. But uh, yeah, it, pretty enjoyable as far as, you know, grim and sort of um, depressing poetry can be. And then finally, the last clip you'll hear is from Femme Fatale, which is by a French author. Uh, they are 19th century tales uh, about Paris, about, as the Penguin phrases it on the cover, high society. Um, I enjoyed these. It was a short story collection. I don't think we said it was a must-read three, uh, that we reserved that for, you know, Kenko, who I think really blew us away. But this was, you know, kind of a nice palate cleanser after we did a lot of poetry. Um, those are the first five clips. I hope you enjoy them. We'll play them now. And then after those five, again, I'll introduce the next five. It's sort of a, he is a sort of everlasting, gosh, I don't want to say wisdom because it just feels like the simplest corny thing to say, but he right. has observations that are uh, worth, timeless. worth adhering to. My, yeah. my review is similar. Um, you, this is the friend who is a monk and you never knew you needed. I mean, I, most of us are, gosh, I don't want to speak for all people, but most people I know don't have a monk friend. And I think this is the one that you need to converse with that you didn't know you did. It's warm. It's honest. It's honestly contradictory at times, which I sort of enjoyed in a, in a way. And uh, I found it quite, I don't know, life affirming to read. It was an excellent little collection. Shall we jump back in with some quotes? Do you want me to go first this week? Or you wrote down specifically here that this compact little collection has, it's got 20 or so pages out of 50 of just quotable quotes. Do you want to start with one? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this one was another one of those where I probably tried to save, you know, some some of my favorite quotes bookmarked. And I think I had like 15 or 20 pages bookmarked where... A lot of these, uh, a lot of these little stories had like so much good, honest uh, thought in them that I found myself marking like a ton of different pages. But um, one that resonated, and I feel like this relates to like not only my own work but a lot of like creative. If you're a writer or an artist, yeah, on page twenty-three, it says something not quite finished is very appealing a gesture towards the future. And I felt like that just had such a, that's such a fantastic way to say, you know, I'm okay with this, uh, this thing I'm working on being unfinished. I'm cool with that. I feel like so many artists or writers would twist that back to say something unfinished feels like a brick that's slowly crushing down my skull, <laughs> a weight, a weight around my neck. <laughs> it, it, fair it, enough. it cannot be moved immovable mm, fair enough yeah i think um he i think i like then how he goes on to say that um <laughs> someone told me that even in the construction of the imperial palace some part is always left uncompleted i found that to be very interesting it was an excellent example yeah. kind of oddly provocative and yeah. mysterious yeah. Yeah. in all cool. things perfect regularity is tasteless that's how he begins it i thought that was pretty good that's certainly yeah that that statement i could yeah, get behind. Important to innovate. I think, um, I mean, we mentioned this in the very beginning in the brief reviews, but he has a ton of quotes in here that are kind of the embodiment of nothing ever changes. And I pulled this one. I don't know why it stood out above the others, but I pulled from 43. And delightful, too, to sit about drinking and lamenting the lack of a suitable snack. 
<laughs> I think that's everyone has been in that extremely frustrating situation. The most recent one for me that comes to mind was at your wedding, oddly, which was like yep. now a year ago. But I'll never forget calling. I called the Domino's at three in the morning that was in Canada and was like, please, I'll do anything if you <laughs> deliver. And they're like, sir, we're not going to drive. It would take us like an hour to get across the border. We don't deliver to America. And I just was on the phone with them for way too long. I remember you telling me that. Do you, Was there not enough food? I remember... Uh... I think I had quite a bit to eat. No, well, that's... Oh, no, there was totally enough food. I was just a fool, and... You know, when the revelry gets going, I just often don't pause to think about eating anything. It's only, you know, it's only at the very end, when the night has wound down, that I sit, you know, stare at myself and sit and think, I really should eat (laughs) something now. Anyway. I could eat I could eat And then more. I lament the lack of a good snack. <laughs> and then I eat those $10 bag of chips at the at the hotel in my hotel room, you know, and each one's kind of like the most mediocre potato chips. They're actually pretty good. You know, potato chips will, or any type of chip will never do it. That's like uh you're setting yourself up for a disappointment. A chip is never going to satisfy. Yeah, I don't know what Kenko I don't know what he was eating under the cherry trees, but it, potato chips don't, they don't sit in the stomach like you need them to. They don't, they don't put no, you down. It's just like, uh, I don't know. I've got some friends that love potato chips, but I, I, I don't know. I can't get behind it. I feel like they're just like, uh, they just make you hungrier for like real food. Yeah. Yeah. A food tease as it were. Um, but going back to that, I think, yeah. Kenko, he did say, cause I pulled a pretty similar quote because it kind of reminded me of um, like what we do together over the holidays. He said, it's also quite delightful to sit across from a close friend in a cozy nook in winter, roasting food over the coals and drinking sake together. I mean, that is so true, but also sounds like he's eating like something roasted. So he's cooking his food over an open fire. I oh, think. sure. Yeah. Nice, nice leg of something or a nice chicken or something tasty. He's definitely not eating potato chips. No, no, not worthy of a roast over an open flame. That is a great, that quote is kind of cozy. Yeah, yeah, it just it has like a familiar feel to it. I don't know. I pulled it because I feel like that's what you and I have been doing like over, it's like the Christmas holiday. It's what everybody does. Yeah, I think in the winter time, it's a good time for a holiday break. I mean, no matter the, obviously there's a lot of different religious holidays, but anytime the winter comes around, it's time to hunker down and get with the people you know and just make some food yeah it kind of um kind of also makes me think of like imagine like 300 years ago you're brave in the elements it's probably gets freezing cold in parts of japan and like that that has to just feel so good it's like a universal feeling where it's like man you just come inside and you just get warm and cook something and just like have a couple drinks right yeah get, just get a little toasty yeah and find yourself yeah. warmed up that's got to be one of the best feelings i think yeah truly yeah i will definitely yeah. not disagree with you i yeah so I'd, i had to pull that i one. have a quote here in kind of in the same vein as the pinterest though it's not not for pinterest um it's more of a tint it's always for pinterest i mean indeed what are we doing here that's the goal <laughs> that's it's, it's all for that it's all for that yes I feel like, too, I feel like I just need to say publicly, I know that you and I are, like, seven years behind on, like, thinking Pinterest is cool, but I think that's part of the charm of our podcast, is we'll always be about seven years behind, whatever the trend is. Yeah, yeah, and somehow by the end, by the time we hit 80 volumes, uh, who knows, maybe this thing with Pinterest will have escalated and 
maybe Pinterest one day will sponsor. I hope front, Who front page it's a podcast. It's a, it's a Pinterest podcast now. Happily, yeah. happily, call me. Yeah, that quote just about gave me heart palpitations. Uh, that was a tough one to read. I can pull. I did pull one other quote that uh, felt like a, a real life connection in, in a sort which is mm-hmm. about friendship on 34. He says, there's no desert like a life without friends. Friendship multiplies blessings and divides troubles. It's the only remedy for bad fortune and it is an oasis of comfort for the soul, which is a di- yeah, difficult one to read for people, you know, transitioning out of, I don't know, it feels like chunking ages into decades is just random, but you know, you transition into your twenties, friends move, people move away. It just is a difficult time. You know, everyone jokes about it's hard to make adult friends, which yeah, it is. It's a different social scene, different circumstances and everything. Um, I feel like many transitioning adults, young adult people could probably relate to that, you know, well, you know, especially post-college, depending on your jobs and who you get set up with and that kind of thing. Yeah, true. Where you, you know, where you find yourself, you know, and that kind of ties in to another interesting sort of maxim that he had. The one that was about like your life changes every seven years and how like, well you adapt to that is like, you know, how well you're able to live your life. I'm trying to, trying to find that one. Um, He also laid out his roadmap for just a, I think the overall cycles of life, which was in the young ages, and he doesn't put years on this. And if he would have, it would be different because life expectancy then I think is, was pretty different. But he yeah. said in the first third of your life, you need to learn from the elders, like basically read a lot and study. In the second third, right. you need to travel a lot and then just like go places and see what you can or try and meet as many people as you can. And then in the yeah. final third of your life, you need to basically st- stay somewhere or like be calmed and try and turn your life into philosophy. I think he said like, and philosophize for the last third of your life, try and write down whatever true things, you know, which hey man, you know, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. That sounds a uh, typical cycle. Yeah. Uh, no, this one, the one that I was thinking of was on page 49 and the maxim is know how to renew your character using nature and art. It says they say that our nature changes every seven years. Uh, let this improve and enhance your taste. Uh, the first seven years, we gain the use of reason. Um, and then, you know, basically going on after that, it's like you should always try and, you know, learn something different, improve yourself. But I guess that could also go into like the social, like think about friends you had seven years ago and then even seven years before that, like it's so rare that they're the same. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like a, that strikes me as cause Malcolm Gladwell got famous for his 10,000 hours kind of number about mastering something. It seems like a number that somebody like him, like a kind of a social scientist type guy would throw out. Like this is roughly how approximately everyone changes, you know, friends circles or social circles or something. Yeah. Yeah. feels. I mean, is any random number? Sure. That number feels good or accurate. I mean, I was just, I was just counting it out last night. Like, zero to seven sure you you know learn everything that you can about reasoning and whatever and then seven to 14 14 21 end of college 28 you're somewhere else 35 you're considered you know like a real adult maybe you have a kid 42 it's like any <laughs> the one thing that i thought was pretty funny is he compared them all to animals 
So he said at 20, a person is a peacock, at 30, a lion, at 40, a camel, at 50, a snake, at 60, a dog, at 70, a monkey, and at 80, nothing. I don't remember a, that at all. That's a good quote um, or an intriguing on, one. Yeah, it's on page 50. I, um, I marked that one, um, but I didn't put it in my the quotes that I pulled. But I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really interesting one. And that, <laughs> that 81, man, nothing. Ouch. I mean, in his time, that he wasn't that wrong, uh, based on how medical care would have been then. I think at that yeah. point, you would have been basically catatonic if you were alive, if not yeah. just disease-stricken. Yeah, maybe that's why at 70 you become a monkey. I think I would I would imagine that the monkey would come earlier on in life, but yeah, 70, if you're, you're 70 years old and 16-something, like, you're probably pretty weird or something, <laughs> something weird's going on if you're if, living that long. If he doesn't provide backup or follow-ups to those uh, applications, to those designations, that's just downright like astrological and it's kind of randomness. Like that's just, he's just saying, he's just saying animals at that point. Like, yeah, a a monkey at 80, (laughs) meaning you're the most foolish and like energetic and like outgoing or what? Well, I don't, yeah, that one, that (laughs) doesn't make so much sense when you really dig into it, but I think that's a dynamite segue to uh, Kenko last week. That's almost like a Kenko type of um, idea or like a thought. I Yeah, the, the connections, we can jump there. The author to author section, this is where we take our last week's review and reading and then try and find connections and threads to this week's. So last week was a collection by a Japanese monk, Kenko, from a long time. I think it was like 9th century or something. It was a long time ago. I uh, think old. it was quite a, quite a bit older. Yeah. And so what was the connection you're saying? Just in terms I of... I was just saying, like, that's, that, that was probably one of the... I mean, there are other quotes, but um, in this book that I thought, you know, were had similarities with... Kenko's, but I, I, for some reason, that just made me think about it. It's like a zodiac type, um, but it's also like a lot of a lot of the thoughts in these maxims. Like he go on, he goes on to back it up and like basically explain it quite well. And this was one of the only ones that just like he just let that one sit. Like there was no, <laughs> there's no explanation for the for the animal comparisons. I can picture him in some kind of current like sitcom or TV show, if he was in a classroom and said that the teacher just saying no, no follow up from that there, Balthazar, you're not going to no, Okay. You don't want to expand. <laughs> it's like, no, 80, nothing. There's no, yeah. there's nothing. That's uh, that's all you wrote in your paper was you just wrote a bunch of numbers <laughs> and uh, animal names. You didn't even <laughs> explain. Is, uh, the rest of your essay, the rest of your paper is just blank. It's just incoherent. Uh, these are just you drew pictures, and that's it. I don't. I don't know what you want me to. How do? Can I grade this? Yeah. I asked you to write me about your summer. Tell me how your summer was. And this is you submitted this number and animal, this, you know, indecipherable symbology chart. Yeah, this is what you give me. Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here with another book review. We continue. The March through the Penguin Classics, Little Black Classics collection, and we're back with some John Keats, The Eve of St. Agnes. Ryan's here on the other end. Hey, Ryan. Yep. Lucky lucky number 13, or maybe unlucky number 13. Only time will tell. 
Isn't that the curse number that they don't put in elevators? Or is that a different number? I think it might be elevators or maybe hotels. I think that was a, another one of those rumors. Like, or there's no 13th floor, maybe? Yeah, no 13th this, floor, uh, something like that. And Yeah, if this was a... If this Little Black Classics volume was a building and this was the 13th floor, I I don't know if I would mind that being, you know, missing, but we'll get into it. We'll we'll get I into thought, that. I thought you were going to say you would jump from it. <laughs> I would if I did find myself somehow on that floor, I probably would try and by any means escape it. Yeah, whatever the architectural equivalent of John Keats is, uh, no. Is all I have to say. I guess no thank you would probably be a little bit less rude. <laughs> is that is that the official review then? Yeah, let's jump right in. Let's do our quick reviews. I suppose I'll start with mine, uh, though it's not just the word no. Um, I think this is this book commemorates sort of an important milestone for me or an important moment for me until I have to read more picture books. Uh, I once had an internship at a library where, you know, occasionally you're like dishing out some picture books and recommending, but until the day comes when I have to engage in that and entertain someone by reading them a picture book, doing a little bit of rhyming, I, if I never read a couplet rhyme again, I would be happy. I just never want to have two lines conclude and rhyme because I just, it, it, it was so Dr. Seuss and so Rainbow Fish this collection i just could not bear to read it yeah <laughs> i could i could not agree more i think that when you when he's when you warned me last week when we were talking about it it was just as bad as i anticipated which is uh which is unfortunate but yeah the rhyming thing i i simply i could not get over that either like every Every other sentence is a is a just a ridiculous rhyme, and it's. I think what I wrote down here was it's dead to me, but respect respect to Keats the God. I just don't <laughs> think I want to read things that are written and constructed in the sing song way. I think sing song rhyme couplet rhyme has just been killed and put in the ground for me, and I you know. In the sense that while I admire a Dr. Seuss book and I'll happily point at the illustrations and have a, you know, a grand old time reading it, I just right. don't want to have to think about it. it. It's an auditory pleasure experience <laughs> and there's nothing, there's nothing pleasurable or auditory about reading this, but it rhymes anyway. So it's like you're dragging right. your brain through the, through the barbed wire trying to analyze it, but at the same time, it's taunting you with the rhymes. And it just, it's an unbearable juxtaposition to me. And I just, I cannot read any more of this. <laughs> that That is so much more brutal than I thought uh, your review would be. That I, but I agree. I have to, I have to agree. I, I could not like, I could not be less interested in some of like the pay, like two of the, two of the stories in this book are like 20 20 plus pages and getting through those two were at, at times just, you know, pretty unbearable where it's like you, he's forcing you to pay attention because he's describing what's going on in so much detail, but it's just like, 
it's just yeah it wasn't worth it to me it was <laughs> it was it was just a little uh, a bit too much i think if i you know come to realize anything from doing this podcast is that maybe like romantic poetry is just that's just not my jam the cu- just like the couplets just it's not for me yeah and on the topic of romantic literature romantic poetry i did grab off the old bookshelf I grabbed my Penguin Literary Dictionary and checked. So the enter, in, uh, the entry, not answer, but the entry for romanticism is very long. I won't bother going over that. But apparently Keats and some of his ilk were involved in the Romantic Revival, which is a term loosely applied to a movement in European literature and other arts during the last quarter of the 18th century and the first 20 or 30 years of the 19th century, marked by a rejection of the ideals and rules of classicism and neoclassicism, and by an affirmation of the need for a freer, more subjective expression of passion, pathos, and personal feelings. Uh, which are all mm. pretty rampant throughout this collection of poetry. Uh, right. That does not mean that we have to enjoy it or, you know, just because it's noteworthy uh, for being a literary movement in Europe. I don't think that means it's worth your time necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, uh, you know, kudos to the cause, you know, if this was, if this was the cutting edge stuff, you know, if this was what was doing it for people, maybe younger people, more progressive people at the time, then man, that's fantastic. But it does not read well today. Like it does not hold up. Yeah. Hold up is such a, it obviously does not have the cadence or the sound or anything that you'd come to expect if you, but I, I don't know. I, that's such an odd description. And I've always refrained from trying to say things like that, though. It's obvious that that's true. What does yeah, a poem but, sound like to you now? Right. I mean, how often does anyone read poetry now? I mean, I would almost expect some people would go into a collection like this thinking, yes, this is how poetry is still written. I mean, it kind of sounds like Dr. Seuss with l- references to Greek mythology and far more complex vocabulary. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, not many people are picking up poetry off the shelves. So if someone said, oh, the, yeah, poets, that's how they speak. That's how they write. I, I don't know. That wouldn't shock me. Something about it felt a little limp, I suppose. Uh, granted, mm. that wasn't all of them. And we'll get into that in a minute with quotes. But overall, <laughs> right. I left wondering... Like, oh, or I left feeling knowing going in that it was about this woman uh, who is, who had died. I got, we got to stop saying the word deceased and died. I don't know. I keep, I guess we just have to keep saying it. It's so <laughs> odd to say it this many times in like five minutes. Anyway, it, well, I just left it feeling, I don't know, under, um, I felt I wanted to be more under assault with sorrow and it was a little more right. quieter. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the description on the back of the, uh, collection says moving el el elegaic what is i don't know a verse set in rural landscapes penned by the grief-stricken hardy after his wife's death i don't i think after reading this and i was reading your comments i don't even know if like you he doesn't even say his wife's name like you don't even know who this person is he just kind of like waxes on about like places they used to go and things they used to do but it's not very no it's not very like direct and it's a lot of it isn't super grief stricken i guess it's it's you know it's it didn't seem it didn't seem that right really to me elegant moving sure 
Yeah. Elegiac, by the way. You nailed it. Um, Elegiac. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a perfect segue, though, to start throwing out some quotes and discussing some of the things we kind of found stirring or interesting or bad. Right. Yes. Some of the sense of loss in the collection is that numb, kind of vague, hazy sense. There was a quote I thought was really sensitive and really pretty delicate, pretty nice. Uh, On page eight, I forget the poem, but he goes out for a walk uh, that he would normally do with his wife and she's not with him anymore. So he does it alone. Right. And then when he gets back, it's yeah, it's called the walk. Yeah. There. Yeah. See, nice and vague. Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He concludes by saying what difference then when he returns only that underlying sense of the look of a room on returning home, which is a nice quiet way of just saying this does not, nothing looks right. You know, it's probably everything's in the place it was in before, but there is just the the look is wrong. Now there's an appearance that is missing and you know, I don't not me, not me, but me, him. I don't know how to articulate it. It seems that's kind of what the narrator's implying there. There's just a look that feels wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Like the, uh, the house or the room. Yeah. It doesn't feel the same. And it is like little bits and pieces like that, where if you're not, if you're not reading it out loud, I think that's something that you mentioned not last week, but maybe even a couple weeks before, but I've had to, I've found myself trying to do that more with these like little poetry collections where if you just gloss over, it's really easy to just gloss over. And just, if you're just trying to make your way through some of these, those are the little bits and pieces that you, you know, might go unnoticed, but um, there are, there are parts, there are quotes in here that I thought, you know, were really, really nicely done. I think delicate is, is the right word kind of sensitive. Um, but just, yeah, just nicely done. Did you find any or pull any that stood out to you? Any of them you want to read? Yeah, the first one I pulled, let's see, it's on page 48. And uh, I, I thought this was nice. It says, this after sunset is a site for seeing cliff heads of craggy clouds surrounding it and dwell you in that glory show. You may, for there are strange, strange things in being stranger than I know. I think that's really nice. And then he goes on to say, yet if that chasm of splendor claim your presence, which glows between the ash cloud and the dun, how changed must be your mortal mold, changed a firmament riding earthless essence from, from what you were of old. I don't know. I thought that was just kind of nice, like a nice visual kind of like him standing, looking at a sunset and asking, you know, is that you now wondering about like if his, you know, if this person is still there? I don't know. That was a nice image for me. It's a shame that it took her passing for him to realize that her, her post life manifestation would be all the sunbeams and the rays of, of light. But I think that's how, you know, right. you were truly in love when, when that person is gone, or I guess maybe you just broke up or something. If every, you know, if every sunset is their the person's essence manifesting, you know, at right. least you had a good while it lasted. Yeah, and I I like the name of this uh, this poem specifically. It's called "He Prefers Her Earthly." <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, that's all good, but he would he would much yeah. rather have her, you know, as a human being standing right that, next to him. Is that the subtitle of a documentary about Woodstock? Because it should be. <laughs> he prefers her earthly. 
I, it, I'm just pitching ideas out here, just tossing them out there into the void of the, into the internet's void, just to see if anything it's, comes back. I did, I did. Speaking of Woodstock, I, Woodstock '50, I guess, is like a complete debacle, almost like a fire festival thing. So, if they need any any real help with their, you know, their marketing or anything, now's the time to get in touch. Travis has ideas. It, it may be in, indirectly influenced by Thomas Hardy, but I feel like we could pitch that. Yeah, I'd rather go back to the more wholesome Woodstocks, the ones that don't have the footage of Fred Durst like screaming at people. But I think that's part ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, that's part of the charm of <laughs> yeah. the bygone times is that we didn't record them nearly as meticulously, and I think that's actually going to hold up well over time as we march forward into the twenty uh, first century deeper. Right. Um, yeah, a lot yeah. of the nineties didn't make it to uh, to the internet, which it's some of it for good. Yeah, thank God. So, I guess that takes us back into the author to author, our favorite, uh, most compelling segment on the pod. And um, I'm going to let you start with this one. Yeah, well, I do have things written down. I, I do think the, <laughs> <laughs> probably smart to. I, I am prepared. Probably, that's, yeah, uh, probably that's smart to kick that one my direction. Yeah, let's set let's set me <laughs> up with the pass there. I'm going to spike it. Or, uh, that would be a bump, but not a pass. But yeah, it's time yeah. To, time to spike it. I think yep, bring it home. I mean, the thematic thread is so obvious. It's about men's relationships with women and that both of them are just the, the last poetry collection let's say it for one final time was about a man's deceased wife and he was a widower i think we've said the word deceased like a hundred times now between those two pods um yeah and, and then most of these guy stories are yeah also about men either trying to save or have relationships with women their characters are all men by the way so what are you gonna do i guess from yeah, the point of, sorry from the point of view of men i meant not just about them um right I, the the tonal contrast is pretty pretty aggressively obvious. I mean, the the guy stories are kind of celebratory in a in a fun way, though they have these darker under like undercurrents. Though, yeah, Hardy's are just so uh, like hmm, melancholy. I think is the right word. Though maybe that word's a little plain. But it, they they mm-hmm. just have that quiet melancholy to them. We talked about these are right. far more fun. Like we read the descriptions, they're just a bit more fun and playful at times. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a really stark contrast. It's almost like Hardy's are like whispered onto the page. And these are like kind of rip roaring kind of like jump off the page. I think that was, that was the, like, that's the comparison that I draw between, uh, Hardy and guy and i think stylistically it pans out i think guy at times comes off they're both subtle i think i wrote that that this there's a lot of similarity in the subtlety of it i think in Mm -hmm. guy though he's more willing to show his hand if that makes sense i mean i know in poetry you're supposed to make things subtle by their nature yeah Uh, and be poetic for lack of a better term (laughs) yeah of of course that's the dream (laughs) you know Uh, (laughs) but i think guys do are more playful. There's some winking. And again, I think if you look at the structure of the stories and how some of them conclude, it is largely coming out with a pretty, I'm not going to say transgressive message for the time. Cause I'm also not going to pretend to fully understand the social life of Parisians in you know, the 1800s or whatever in the social economics. Yeah. Even early, economic. early 19 or late 19th century. More, sure. more just the gender dynamics because that's again what these stories mostly deal in. But 
it definitely feels yeah. more playful, playful. Sorry, and there's a there's more winking about like, ooh, see this, see this maybe controversial thing I just pulled in the story. So yeah, it's yeah more of that. Yeah, um, yeah, I uh, I agree, and couldn't have uh, couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, I'm flattered. Um, yeah, and no no desire on my part this week. I don't know about you for style swap. That's another author author check in. I don't care how hardy. I don't, I'm not interested in how hardy would write a playful night out in Parisian France, like being debaucherous and like buying uh, all kinds of alcohol and like prostitutes and what. I, I have no interest in his version of that. Me either. Yeah, he kind of, uh, he can stay in his lane, I think. And also, I'm not sure if I would want to hear Guy, well, I guess I would be more interested in Guy uh, trying on Hardy's style more so than I'd like to see that reversed you know in in two stories we essentially did get the same topic in both the story about the the hot hot and son and the woman in the graveyard both of those are pretty much about loss in a sense but they he puts his guy not satirical twist but his sort of like subversive twist on them and how the you know narratives play out and what the characters do yeah. it's it's far less yeah. sincere i think it's more yeah more clever it doesn't yeah, I think so. A little bit more clever, even though, you know, he maybe he could have taken a different direction with it. But um, I thought the wink in the, like you said, the um, Hatat and Son story at the end, I thought was really nicely done. And yeah, he, he deals with loss quite a bit, but he has a um, like a very... It's kind of lighthearted, even though, like you said earlier, there are some pretty there's some pretty dark undertones. I think so. Yeah. Okay, those were clips from the first five episodes, technically episodes eleven through fifteen. Hope you enjoyed them. Uh, I'm here to again set up the next five clips. Let's do this. The first clip you're about to hear is from Travels in the Land of Serpents and Pearls, which is an excerpt from Marco Polo's diaries or journal entries or however they're categorizing those. Um, definitely some intriguing images and insights in that one and some like must be comical either misinterpretations of culture or just some exaggerations. You know, maybe he was just trying to make a buck. I, we respect the hustle here on the podcast. That will be followed by a clip from our review of Caligula, which was a, a Roman history and really just a brutal takedown of a, what sounds like a truly depraved uh, ruler and a really horrible person, Caligula. So that was, it takes a little bit to get going, but I think our clip will sort of show what that guy was all about. Um, that will be followed by Jason in Medea, which is by Apo- Apollonius of Rhodes. This is a Greek text, um, very classic Greek mythology. It has gods and goddesses meddling in human affairs. It has a, a hero on a quest. It has a lot of those checkbox tropes. Um, and I think we both moderately enjoyed that. That was had some decent moments in it, really. The final two, the first of those two will be from Olala, which is a Stevenson novella um, that is kind of Victorian era and Gothic. Compared to the Keats, which you heard us talk about earlier, I think we both enjoyed this Victorian era thing uh, piece a lot more, probably just because it wasn't poetry and didn't have rhyming in it. Um, and it's this is technically also a vampire story, but eh, you listen to the full podcast for our thoughts on that. It's it is lightly vampire. Uh, I think by twentieth or twenty first century standards, even it would not check many boxes on that front. The final 
clip will be from um, an interesting episode, one that meant a lot to me personally, just based on my, I don't know, my history and interests and things. It was uh, episode 20 on the Communist Manifesto. So I will pull a clip of Ryan and I discussing and kind of reviewing the Communist Manifesto, a work that holds up in a very strange way and then in some ways doesn't hold up. I don't know. I mean, I felt very conflicted. Uh, Listen again to the full review of that if you're intrigued on our deeper thoughts, but that will be the final clip. Like the last best of, I will not record an outro, so I'll say goodbye to you, our dear listeners here. Just wanted to convey and express another sincere thank you. It's been such a treat and a delight, really, to do the podcast, to record with Ryan. I know that when I put my thoughts out there on the podcast, it feels like I'm hopefully in conversation in a way with the listeners. And it's something that, you know, he and I talked about doing for a while. We've done book clubs together for a few years, um, sort of casually emails back and forth. But this was a way to, I don't know, make it firm and um, hopefully just share it with people. And there's just nothing greater than talking about literature and books. I think to the both of us, it's something we just genuinely enjoy. If you ever do have thoughts or questions, feel free to email us. We do take emails, though don't get too many other than from some uh, friends and family who we, you know, we love you guys. Thanks for that. Um, But we do have an email, Gmail account, onthestump1 at gmail.com. That's the number one. So onthestump1 at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, though I don't post too much on there now. I'll probably start doing a bit more, maybe weekly things or a couple times weekly. And Instagram. On those platforms, we are The Stumped. That's also the name of our website, thestumped.com. If you could rate us on your platform, podcast platform of choice, or just recommend us to friends, family, coworkers, whomever likes to read and needs recommendations, or maybe just wants to hear about some different literature and is just curious, you know, feel free to throw our name out there. We'd be flattered and honored. Um, Thanks again for listening. I look forward to doing the next highlight episodes after 10 more recordings. For now... Um, let's get to the rest of the show and then hopefully a new Brothers Book Club podcast coming your way soon. Thanks so much. I guess you have to consider that also in the context, apparently he was writing this to, or he was pitching this, talking about it to someone in prison. He was imprisoned at the, uh, the time, like, man, this is the book I'm going to publish when I get out. I've been a ton of places and it was crazy. Yeah, I think he definitely got the manuscript together in prison in Genoa or something. I I didn't read up too much on his life, and mm-hmm. nor have I watched the Amazon or the um the Netflix show, which I'm sure is very accurate. Uh, and so I don't, I don't really know why he was imprisoned, but yeah, that's what it said online. It was just he drafted in prison. Um, did you have any quotes that reminded you of being imprisoned in his rhetoric? Uh, that's the segue I'm giving. That was pretty good uh, for all the listeners out there. Never been to prison, but if I if I were to pull one uh, that was the most prison like, uh, the first one I pulled was a really interesting hygiene quote. It was like on page, let's see, fourteen. Everything clean and pleasant they do and touch with the right hand, for the left hand is reserved for unpleasant and unclean necessities like wiping the nostrils, anus, and such like really makes you question your mm. own hygiene habits and you know like thinking about i mean that that makes sense to me in some in some weird way i guess but then i have so many questions about that well firstly most important question what is what would such like be what's another thing that's like your anus and your nose what maybe a- like, I, I would I, I the only thing that came to mind is like cleaning your feet like maybe what cleaning the bottom of your feet but like any orifice maybe like 
cleaning out your ears or I, I just know I, I have no idea. I don't think modern medicine will let us elevate those to the status of anus. Although they do call the foot the anus of the leg, you know. So who, who calls it that? No, I, I, no, no one. As far as I know, I'm calling it that right we, now. We do now. This podcast. That's right. We're gonna put let's, it, tra- let's let's trademark that. The put foot, it on a t-shirt. The foot is the anus of the leg. Yes. Right. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Under, uh, underappreciated workhorse of the leg. Yeah. Also, I feel like if that's like that's the type of hygiene level that you're trying to get to. I guess if you are like imprisoned or in some type of prison, it's like I'm not going to touch that with my good hand. Like I have, right. a, I have a bad hand for that. Or if you don't have sanitary wipes or anything like that, or antibacterial soap, or running water. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which, I, which which these people had nut zero of. So I guess you know. His method makes sense in that regard. I do agree yeah. with that. I think today it would be a bit, I mean, unless you're a particularly careless person and really just trying to get yourself sick, I just think, a you know, slob, yeah. it's more of a mental block. I, you know, I could see somebody mentally just thinking, I can't use both hands. To me, my left hand just isn't that useful. It's not, as de- it's not like dexterous enough. My left right. hand just is not, I can't use it for as many things. Mm, yeah, true. This was one of my favorite excesses. I mean, there were so many. Uh, and again, in these reviews, we're not looking to give a full rundown. So I just pulled my favorite one, I think. Right. Um, but it says, he invented new kinds of baths and the most unnatural dishes and drinks, bathing mm. in hot and cold perfumes, drinking valuable pearls dissolved in vinegar, and providing <laughs> his guests with golden bread and golden meat. He would remark that Caesar alone could not afford to be frugal. Uh, which I think, I mean, it has a slight connection because you'll see these dishes nowadays at restaurants. If you want to go over the top, you put gold leaf on things. Right. Or you just, yes. you know, these Flake, ridiculous flaked in gold. Yeah, really artificially inflated foods, which are already really stupid. But again, I think Caligula has a one-up on everyone because drinking a pearl dissolved in vinegar is just... That's, that's just I wild. Mean, yeah, that's wild that's as hell. That's the epitome of access, I think, in that my is, mind. Yeah, that is lavish. Like... This pearl has been dissolving in this vinegar for months. It's time that we both just drink it up. Like, what? The the arrogance to have to consume it. I mean, it's not enough to just wear it or have it out and looking pretty. The Having to to eat it is just, or drink it, (laughs) just speaks to a a twisted mind that really did not stop. (laughs) One of those screws up there is, is quite loose. Um, it, it's actually funny that quote that you just pulled the, like the sentence after it, he said, uh, it goes for several days in succession. He scattered large sums of money from the roof of the Basilica Julia and he built Liburnian galleys with 10, 10 banks of oars, jeweled poop decks, multicolored sails and huge baths, colonnades and banqueting halls aboard, not to mention growing vines and fruit trees of different varieties. Is he, is he, is they saying that on a boat? Yeah, that's all, like that's all on a cruise. Vines and shit on the on the cruise ship. Is this so different, really, than the kinds of yachts you see today? Just, I mean, not that I am on them ever, but the kinds no. of yachts that you can see videos and pictures of and everything. I mean, I guess not. It's just like a different type of, uh, like a different type of showing off or a different way, I guess. But I mean. Yeah, you could probably equate that to, you know, these people who put together these, like, mega yachts. Um, I don't know if anyone's growing, like, vines or fruit on their yacht, but, you know, that's that's, no, we, that's one we way to take it. We refrigerate it now. We refrigerate. 
Well, of course. Yeah, that's true. But what's cooler than you just, you know, maybe you're just sailing in, you're docking your boat, you look over and it's just got, you know, some guy's boat is just big enough. He's just got a row of vines, you know, just growing some <laughs> grapes, just <laughs> thinking about I, making some wine. I'm certain we could find a yacht. Don't know about the growing or the grapes or the practical fruit kind of plants, but I bet we could find a yacht that has a, a tree on it or something or like a garden in it. See, that seems cool. That seems, that's lavish right there. It's like, oh. Well, part of my yacht is actually uh, I've I've man-made forest <laughs> on there. Like, yeah, there's a tree. There's yep. like a, a courtyard or something. It's its entire um, ecosystem right here. Yeah, it's uh, totally self-sufficient. There's uh, there's one that I pulled on. It kind of has to do with the same like ridiculous over-the-top thing with uh, money and gold. On um, page 44, it said, at last he developed a passion for the feel of money and spilling heaps of gold pieces on an open space. He would walk over them barefoot or else lie down on them and just wallow. Like, just just visualize that. Just mm. a person. It's like the, remember watching DuckTales growing yeah. up? Yeah. You know the intro in DuckTales when um, I think it's, it's not Scrooge, but who's like the, who's like the, Donald, that's not Donald Duck, but like whoever that is, where he dives into the pool of gold. Oh yeah, he just, he's like he swims in it. It's like that's that's like the same type of same type of thing. Like uh, growing up, you see that and you're like, man, that is that is over the top. That's insane. You that like you can't just dive into a pool of pool of gold. That's still my image of what the hyper wealthy do. I mean, I I don't know if it's you know holds up. <laughs> a lot of it might be digital at this point, but in my in my brain, when I have to picture yeah. like Jeff Bezos, it's like all right, it's Saturday night. What's Jeff Bezos doing? It's like ninety percent of my brain goes basically there, where it's like, oh yeah, yeah. he's doing he's swimming in his money pool, <laughs> doing a high dive, doing a swan dive, and do you know this like pool of gold coins. He has a room in his house that is like the size of a, I don't know, like a, a warehouse size room. And he, there's a diving board right at the top and he just dives into it. It's just an abyss of money. Yeah, really, really an endless pit. He's well, definitely now, never seen the bottom of it. Yeah, now we know where, it, uh, where all that uh, inspiration came from. It was Caligula in the very beginning, just laying on it. Just That's a, when, <laughs> when, the, when the very touch becomes a kind of a tactile need, kind of an aesthetic or tactile right. sensation that you need, I think that's when you know that you've gone pretty far with your wealth. <laughs> with you your, gotta, uh, yeah, you might want to step away or find some uh, find some other hobbies. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's not something that I don't think was meant to be uh, enjoyed in that kind of way. I don't think it's meant to be alive. Yeah. yeah, just touching it to your skin and feeling comforted by it. That's there's something to unpack there. We're no, no. we're no Freudians here, but I think there's something there. There's some, yeah, <laughs> there's there's a lot of stuff going on with this guy. I think if you really you know want to break it down in that way. Let's jump to the author to author yes. section. Let's get into that. I think. Uh, did you have any other quotes that you want to throw out there before we do? Um, I don't think so. The author to author I thought was kind of interesting though. The, um, like looking back to like the Roman history of last week, comparing it to, you know, the Greek mythology of this week. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be interesting to get, you know, Suetonius's take on a lot of the stuff that's going on in this book, especially I, you know, with the relationship with Medea and her father and that sort of that sort of side of it. Like, I, I don't know. I thought Suetonius could provide a pretty, um, I don't know, interesting detailed look on that. This isn't even, I had a, 
pretty similar connection, though I wanted to, I broke off and went a little renegade this week, I guess, because my connection wasn't even author to author, but it was author to character. I felt like yeah. Medea's father basically was a Suetonius type in the story, N- not in that he was chronicling things, but just his reaction to the Argonauts and Jason, he was just he, basically he was just like, get the fuck out of here. Like when they showed, they he like snuck tried. into his home and like snuck onto his island. Yeah. And you know, oh, as soon as, yeah, he, that's true. He, he shows up and basically says, I should just kill you all right now. And then just doesn't, I think, I think he just says he's too tired or I forget the quote. I'll, maybe I'll try and pull it in a second, but that I thought was, not that he sat there and listed everything they did wrong, but he clearly saw this like brooch in, in etiquette and protocol and his disgust was, yeah, yeah you could just sense and feel his disgust. Very Suetonius like then he just kind of gave in and was like, nah, this, you, you guys suck. <laughs> he saw, he saw through the bullshit. I think he was, he said something, you know, he's like, Oh, like great to, great to meet you guys. Have a, you know, have a seat and feast with me. And then he's like, wait, wait a second. You guys, you got this whole thing is fucked. Uh, I'm going to give you an impossible task and uh, otherwise, you know, try to plot your demise immediately after that. That was pretty, that was true. Yeah, I suppose the, uh, I suppose the task itself was the punishment. Um, And yeah, we're not trying to do too much. I don't know, plot story spoilers in this one, but the, the journey, the quest that Jason's given to start or to kind of guide the story is definitely the punishment in his mind. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he caught, he has a couple like funny things. That, well, not funny, but like the way he refers to it, like after it's been given to him, is like uh, I thought it was pretty pretty comical because he knows how ridiculous it is and how like impossible it seems. Yeah, here I, I found the page. I'm going to pull a couple of his quotes because it's worth going back to these. This is very, uh, you know, Suetonius in the Caligula history from last week. I don't think he was recommending punishment, although I think when he got the des- description of his assassination, Caligula's assassination, he seemed pretty neutral on the whole thing. So I think he was like, yeah, it's fine. And then he got killed and that's about what should have happened. Um, but here's yeah. a couple sentences. It says the king was filled with rage as he listened to Argus. His eyes blazed with fury as he burst into speech. And then, yeah, he says, "If you had not, uh, if you had not already eaten at my table, I would tear your tongues out and chop off your hands, both of them." Which is a nice little modifier. It's a nice little uh, addendum yeah, there. Nice little touch. And send you yeah. back with nothing but your feet to teach you to think twice before starting on another expedition. Um, and so, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, he, he's got the sound and the fury going there. Uh, yeah, and that that just reminded me of the intensity of yeah, last week of back, uh, the back half rather of last week's reading. Yeah, very Caligula esque, very uh, very off the cuff, but also really detailed. Yeah, really good. Yeah, I would I would probably read a version. You know, give me that kind of burning intensity, um, but just you know, give me. I basically I want a longer speech by him about Jason and his band and his band of, of I guess, uh, adventurers. I, you know, yeah. Give me a few more pages of takedown like that. I think that would be the style, you know, author, author style I'd want right there. Oh yeah. That's uh, that's very appealing. Yeah. Give me, um, just give me, yeah. Give me all the details about him, uh, him just plotting Jason's demise and the, the whole rest of his crew from the time he gets there. Like I, I would read that. 
That sounds fantastic. Yeah, th- I mean, this story is mostly from the Argonauts and Jason's point of view, and uh, Medea's too. Which, I, as I mentioned, I think at the very beginning, eh, it was probably my favorite part overall. Like she gets, she has some intrigue in here. Granted, you know, she got hit by Cupid's arrow, so you can probably guess where her narrative goes. But there was still some, in- where, yeah, yeah, she still has some interesting parts. Yeah, I would agree. There's an interesting like ancestral kind of thing because like a lot of those, I think that's kind of where it starts off once he gets to the house is there's that, there's that portrait of that woman that kind of like grips him, like kind of like chills him to like his core where it's kind of like, he's trying to figure out like, is this person like, I haven't seen them here. They might be hundreds of years old. This woman might be alive. Like, but also, you know, tracing that to there's only three people who live in this the I'm gonna keep calling it the residencia because I really like that aspect yeah. of it. Um it's the mother and then uh her two two kids. And I think that that's kind of like where it kind of picks up in the beginning where he's kind of you know, he's kind of wondering like how did this house come to be, you know, this, it's all it's dusty, it's old, it's decrepit, like, these people, I think he even goes so far as to say, like, after, like, years of inbreeding, like, they're not very intelligent, or at least, like, the the son is kind of like a, I don't know, just kind of like a simpleton. <laughs> but, well, he compares uh, yeah. the son to an animal, like, directly to an animal. Yeah, I actually pulled, um... <laughs> There's there's one quote that I pulled in the beginning. It's on page six. Um, and I think that he's talking, I think, because he kind of, he gets taken up to the house by that, um, I think he calls him like a mul- muleteer or something, like a dude who like basically like commands like a donkey cart. But I think he's talking yeah, about mule, the son. Uh... Like a, yeah, I think he's talking about Philippe or F- Felipe, the, uh, the son. And he said, uh, the lad was but a child in intellect. His mind was like his body, active and swift, but stunted in development. And I began from that time forth to regard him with a measure of pity and to listen at first with indulgence and at last even with pleasure to his disjointed babble. Yeah. Oh, wait. Nope, that's not the... Uh... Oh, yeah, no, that is Philippe. But it, yeah, he kind of he kind of beats around the bush a little bit um, when he's talking about like how the how like the family has just fallen into like kind of shambles very similar to the house that he's staying in right right yeah i think the the family dynamic is what to what kind of keeps you in the story keeps you gripped and certainly the there's there's the right moments of tension that the author kind of plays on and builds up yeah yeah there are a few moments i i guess i suppose a, a nitpicky kind of plot analysis person would find predictable i suppose um the way that certain characters and conflicts are played up but no i think yeah the his interactions with the family are fascinating philippe too he he calls him a vermin on page 13 that was the quote i had pulled which i think is where it raised my sensitivity to just what this book would be examining and criticizing because and i think you're right a lot of it is attributed to the the family's like physical decay their inbreeding that's kind of what they attributed to i suppose yeah. is that they don't they don't go out into the world and they don't mix they want to stay yeah. they want to keep their family line 
disappear in some way. Uh, and he right. criticizes Felipe for like cruelly killing a squirrel or attacking a squirrel. And he calls him not a man, but a vermin that he's, you know, like less than a, less than a person that he can't control his instincts, which yeah. is a classic. I mean, frankly, that, that kind of criticism is often leveraged and that imagery is often leveraged in a much different way than just f- because of inbreeding it, it has darker connotations if you just look at other moments in history when it's like hey when has one group of people compared another group to animals it's almost never good <laughs> no. uh, which is why in this case it just i don't know it raised my uh, attention just to think like oh, i wonder what's this book going to get into because it it is a, a scottish main character in spain and so at first i thought is it going to be about like the continent? Is it going to be about yeah. the, the history yeah. of Spain? But I don't. It never really fully comes across that way. Like there's no, there's not really any Spanish in it except for a couple words. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Padre and Residency. Like the, yeah, that's that was one thing that they never really got into, and you don't, you don't even like view the family he's staying with, or even the narrator is like Scottish or Spanish. It's kind of like a, it's like timeless and or not timeless, but like um. Like they, they don't really attribute it doesn't become like a like a race thing or like a like a regional thing. It's it just seems like it's more like you said, it's kind of just like a gothic kind of trope, like um like these people are just like for some reason or another, I mean reasons you learn later on in the story, but they're just yeah, just like closed off from like the outside world. Where I just wondered, there were certain moments um, in the in the story where I thought, again, a person of some scholarship, I wonder what they've they've kind of picked apart at with this narrative. Because I agree, I think as a modern reader, you're not going to pick at, you're not going to pick anything out of this and go, "Wow, he just it really thinks that Spain is just a barbarous place with like animal people." It just doesn't. Yeah. It, it kind of leaves it lie. There, there. It just yeah. doesn't dominate the narrative. But there's so many subtle things. I couldn't help but wonder, for example, the like matriarch of this family, the uh, older woman, I even forget her name, but she, all she does is sleep all day, it seems, and just kind of lie around and not attempt anything and just sort of luxuriate in her having nothing to do, which, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, again, I don't know how to quite read that. And he calls her the senora as a title. There's not, but I just don't find any direct. I don't know. There wasn't anything direct enough to latch onto other than this entire family line is ending because they refuse to, I don't know, engage with the, with anyone else. Right. Yeah. And that, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because it's like the first person he really interacts with, or I don't know, maybe it's like kind of at the same time when he gets to know uh, Felipe or Philippe, but he kind of like marvels at the, (laughs) <laughs> the senora's like uh ability to just like do nothing like all day long yeah which really uh impressive. yeah <laughs> yeah i i pulled the quote i think it's on yeah page 17 where he's um he's just kind of like there's there's times when he just like sits in the courtyard they don't do anything and you don't really get a sense of like how long he's been there or how long he plans on staying because i think he's just like recovering at this house but he uh, there's just a lot of sitting around and he gets to like observe this older woman um and i i pulled this in this little one sentence on 17 he's just like marveling at her he said a look more blankly stupid i have never met 
it's it's just like he just yeah he's just sort of like just marveling at how like simple and kind of like withdrawn but uh, but she's also like engaged somewhat like he he starts talking about how like they actually kind of strike up like a rapport and they have like a little thing going for a while where it's like they would talk or like not even talk but they would just kind of like sit with each other for a while which i thought like that was that was kind of an interesting part um right but yeah i don't i don't know it's a uh, like the character development i thought was like pretty interesting or like lack thereof i suppose this this text it's like you are living a dream, but with total clarity. And so it's mm-hmm. weird. Some of it's so disconcerting and disconnected. And then some of it's so lucid. And you're just like, whoa, that's, yeah, that's really clear. And then some of it's dense and it's often all of that at once. And so I found the process of reading it just really weird. I guess well, the closest comparison would be like you, I time traveled and met a former version of myself and he was a, a lot like what I remembered and then not at all like I remembered. And so it felt odd. Okay. Well, I guess I, I totally agree with you about like the lucidity of it. And like there are certain sentences in these paragraphs that you're like, holy shit, yes. And then you read the rest of the paragraph and you're like, wait, what were we? Okay, I'm going to go back. But that makes me curious. What was your first, like you said, you're reading Marx in college or high school even, like, what was your first take of this? Like, what was what was your first take when you first read it? So, yeah, and that's the thing. I don't even remember reading this, The Communist Manifesto, for the first time. Yeah. I remember the first uh, political class that I had uh, would have been in college that it was a political theory class where we read a lot of Marxist offshoots and then some Marx and some Hegel. Hegel's the German philosopher that he kind of derives from, that he Mm -hmm. was inspired by. Yeah. Um, I remember that quite clearly because I thought, well, this is uh, much different than things I had ever learned. And then, yeah, from there, you know, classes get taken and things get deepened. Um, But I I can't remember, honestly, and the funny thing about Marx ultimately for me um, this is we're way out of review territory now, but I'm cool with it. <laughs> yeah, it's been 20 episodes. You know, we I had think, 20 good yeah. contained ones. This one might be pretty sprawling. Who knows? I liked I liked what you said when you said we threatened to record it yesterday because uh, that's kind of yeah. That's I think that's kind of the goal of this 20th episode is to yeah just uh, just expand on things a little bit more. I think we've earned that. Well, when you have a person like Marx who is who essentially transformed some aspects of political theory and economic theories, and then also literature and literary theory, uh, it, it's just I almost feel like I experienced him secondhand from all of his predecessors, um, not predecessors, but successors, right. and a lot of literary theorists since then, and various political people and figureheads yeah. and like cultural more con- cre- more critics. More contemporary, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, and so it's just it's odd to go back to the original document. Like I don't think I'll ever crack open Capital again. That's like his monumental one mega work about capitalism, but mm-hmm. maybe I will. I don't know. I have like a portable reader still (laughs) sure like how long do you think that uh not long but what do you think that audiobook would read like because you know everyone's got to commute 
just pop that on in the car. Yeah, in, yeah. In between, in between trips, you know? See, even now, I mean, the world keeps turning, right? Marx would agree to that. And even now, if someone came to me and they were like, hey, I heard you were Marxist. And I was like, yeah, all right, let's, we can talk, you know, <laughs> give, give me the secret handshake or whatever. <laughs> show me, show me your half of the tattoo and we'll connect them together on our forearms. Like, yeah, right. yeah, uh, the yeah. And it's, but they're like, well, you know, I'm just curious, like even now, some of the economics have gotten profoundly updated for new new realities, new working conditions. For sure. There was a French uh, economist, I think two or three years ago, who wrote a like 1500 page tome, basically reassessing a lot of the views and a lot of the economics. And so there's just updated versions of all of this. That's like how it applies to the manifesto. Well, uh, how it applies to Marx's ideas. That's cool. the thing. Let's okay. let's get into some quotes because w- the thing about this book, and so I will I will happily take the like I've studied this in college douchebag high ground. It is just <laughs> I'll, I'll take the low Well, it's yeah, it's just stunning how many things in this book should be clearly elaborated upon, and then the it just doesn't. Because it's not supposed to, because it's a manifesto. It's like a brief. It's supposed to be a brief motivational, you know, sort of a motive. Yeah, motivational or inspirational piece. It's like the elevator pitch, but like in pamphlet form. It's like here's here's our thing, man. Here's here's all of it. Yes, this is the deal. And so there are too many moments in this when I thought, gosh, he really didn't have a, a, like, he didn't elucidate on this in any way. This, like, critical concept that I used to really or still find compelling. And it's just like, he just doesn't, he just doesn't. That just goes by the wayside. So, yeah, Mm. I had that reaction a lot of while reading this. All right, man. Well, let's get into let's get into the first quote you pulled. I'm so curious as to what that one was because I yeah I pulled a couple. Yeah, I think I'm going to start with the by far the prediction that still should make the world tremble, um, though you know conditions have changed uh, on page 20, which is the, what the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all is its own grave diggers, and I think that in any revolution that you study. Uh, this this truism kind of holds that if you want to find a place primed for revolution, you will find people that have been primed yeah. by conditions or people or the market or the yeah. government or the state or whatever. Yeah, the worst so, people. Yeah, and so I mean, in the 21st century, how how is this relevant? You know, let's not. We're not going to dig up like climate science now. Sure, but I, no. I can't help but think that if. If that is not a certain type of grave that a capitalist drive could put us toward, then I don't, that seems, it seems perfect. It's like a perfectly calibrated thing and that a certain economy and a certain system could drive towards. Sure. Yeah. Both both short term enough to actually get to the grave and long term enough to make people not see the grave. It's like the perfectly middle ground calibration. So it's a prediction that is still pretty eerie, though, again, it's not like, you know, it's not like I picture the grave diggers these days as like Russian dudes in factories making steel. You know, it's a different, Mm. a slightly different different image. It's a different working class. Like you can try, I mean, this might, this might fall too far off, but I mean, think about, I think about, you know, laborers in industry 200 years ago, laborers in various industries now and who we're talking about, or I guess who Marx and 
angles we're talking about was like the true working class, like basically like minimum wage equivalent, like workers and say, you know, say you're working at some tech firm, you're coding, you're doing, that could mean anything. Now there's so many different, like you said, like the global economy, everyone, you know, an entry level job, you could be doing so many different things compared to back then. And like, basically you getting worked hard enough that you ultimately want to, yeah, like rise up and revolutionize. Yeah. And I just, I wonder in the context of 21st century issues, what the production of, I mean, I guess it says it's producing its own grave diggers. And in my brain, I've just sort of like ignored the the diggers part. Like the people are there planning for it and to be like, yeah, we'll take over once you're dead. I was, I guess it's just p- producing its own grave is kind of what I imagine is that it, yeah. it's definitely going to bury itself. Um, you, in reality, if your entire system is calibrated around ever increasing consumption, well, you live in a finite planet, which is just a shame for that system. And so mm-hmm. basic sense and math tell us that it will end. I mean, how and when and through what, you know, steps, that can always be debated. But mm. if you have a finite place and your system is only built on just growth for infinity, uh, that's that is problematic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never thought about it that way. Um, they do talk about, I think, towards the end where they start kind of talking about like other societies and they talk about um agrarian that was like a term i had to look up but it's basically you know like agriculture driven which i mean if you look at like the finite you know us living on earth it's like well maybe that should be a priority you know like maybe (laughs) maybe that's not the worst thing to be but that was a kind of a side note um, yeah, I mean, he, he, man, one thing that comes up a lot in here that as every time I read it, I thought, man, this is so much more complicated yes. uh, than, than he, he presents it is the idea of, uh, what, what basically what feudalism is or well was and what it promoted and the economic relations within feudalism. It's sort of like in the book, in this manifesto, it, it's a, there's a lot of shorthand around it and there's a lot of history. He summarizes well, but then skips some things. So, you know, you'd have to know going in, like, maybe Wikipedia, I don't know, (laughs) some feudalism (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Never again. I don't know. Yeah. That's, well, I I feel like as someone who has never read, uh, I don't believe I've read any Marx or, um, which is a shame, or Engels for that matter. But uh, I was, yeah, I really had to, like, you know, do a little bit of the old Wikipedia research, just jumping into it, like, man. What, what is that? Like, what does that term mean? Like, who are these people? Because I think, like you said, so much has changed. But at the same time, like, there's one quote that I pulled from page 13 that was like, I think everyone can still relate to, and this would make anyone want to, like, eventually do something, is um says, no sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash then he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, etc. Like, man, that that shit still applies. There's like that meme that you see all the time. It's like the payday, but then like the day after payday where it's like you have to pay all your bills and shit like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, man, the money comes and goes. And it's like, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's been the case. I thought that was something that it's like, man, who can't relate to that even in 2019 still? Right. 
Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, the pawnbroker is such a, a fascinating one to drag well, into that that's example. Been, that's, been, that's been a little dated. But... I know it would be too literal, but I still find it, yeah, to be fascinating. It's, I mean, it's the classic idea of what do you own in really, yeah. you know, like yeah. what, what do you really own? How much control do you truly have and can you truly exercise? And how do right. you discern between or how do you feel out, you know, what you have the power over or what you don't? I mean, we live in a time when people, I mean, my age, your age, like are renting in higher numbers than ever, renting all manner of things, mostly places to live. Um, yeah. Or and that, like, ah, you could you could apply that to anything like yeah. TV or entertainment. You rent that, like music, mm-hmm. you know. Like, uh, I don't know. I think that kind of applies. Yeah, ownership of things. Now, granted, again, his his ideas were more industrial, but right. I think that the trickle down in terms of how this applies is is relevant. There's just a lot of it's just questions worth asking, and I don't know if technology is has made this kind of expedited this, made this go more quickly, kind of exacerbates right. it. You know, it seems like that's what the trend is, is to not own things, but just borrow them. Yeah. Uh, and it, a, a development that would have rightly horrified him. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he's the, the <laughs> talk about, I mean, issues around private property, like that's not even private property anymore. It's just private rental. And so perhaps there even were- a worse version <laughs> of that. Yeah. There was a, uh- there's the one and we're yeah talking about private property that I think I got to page like 23 where I was like, you know, I'm still in the beginning. I'm still kind of skimming through and like, you know, taking everything like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a, like a fantastic way to think about that. Or, yeah, it's spot on or whatever. But there's the um, there's a sentence on 23 that is like um, in this sense, the theory of communism may be summed up, summed up in this single sentence, abolition of private property. That's right, like uh, right. that. That was one of the so that was like, and then in the pages that follow, I do like how they kind of like present their argument, and then they just like argue against it for like a few pages in like a couple different aspects, and then like that's it. Like, there's no elaboration right. on that really, but it's like, man, you think private property is so cool, and you think that gives you freedom. Well, here's why we're telling you that it doesn't. Yeah, that leads into one of my favorite quotes. It is, that's another thing that as I look at this, and they even acknowledge it in the pamphlet, which I guess, you know, that's a well-organized, well-drafted pamphlet then, because they do say, look, we know that your number one thing you're going to say to us is, holy shit, you're going to get rid of my property? Like, I can't have, I can't have this shirt anymore. I love this shirt. You're just going to, that's Bob's shirt now. Bob can just come say, I want the shirt for today. I'm taking it. Like, of course, have to address this. It's like one of the key. But there's such a, the quote I pulled is on 26, yeah. um, about freedom. And it's one of those really prescient, like the thing that at the core of the philosophy that always needs to be debated or at least understood and defined on people that want to talk about, the, mm. you know, Marxism, communism. Yeah. Uh, they say freedom is meant under the present bourgeois conditions of production as free trade, free selling and free buying from the moment when individual property can no longer be transformed into bourgeois property into capital. From that moment, you say individuality vanishes. Essentially, the claim being, yeah, your freedom just means you can freely buy and sell things um, as if we cannot imagine a different type of freedom, any, any other type. 
Right. Freedom for anything else. Yeah. And of course, to, to acquire capital. You'll, you'll hide this true freedom. Like, that's truly what they want when, you know, they, being capitalists or whatever, right. um, want freedom. They That's what they want. Though they'll argue like, well, you know, it's really that we want free speech or we want freedom of expression. Or, you know, they say freedom of other things. Yeah. But if the, one, if the one that is threatened is freedom of exchange. That's the one that where you'll see true action on their part or, you know, freedom of speech is always, always room for debate, you know. It's totally. comes and goes yeah. and you see that. But as soon yeah. as you think like, or as soon as you see like, no, it's property, we're we, yeah, we buying and selling. The, yeah, we think this is the notion of freedom we no longer want. Like, oh, then, then you'll know. Ah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's so, I again, like so relevant. You know, it's like you hear all the time, like, oh, you, you know, follow the money. It's like, it's like, yeah, until until you're no longer able to like acquire capital for yourself, which uh, you know is kind of like the base of their argument too. Where it's like, wow, does that really you know? Do you think that's freedom? Like, is that freedom to you? Are you asking me personally, or are you posing it as just a rhetorical question? <laughs> totally, re- totally rhetorical. But if you if you want to get into like you know how how cap or how communist leaning are we? I guess is that I don't know if that's the purpose of this episode. I, I don't think it is. I mean, I don't want it to be. I've never thought of this podcast as like, let you and me just pontificate and like, you know, es- see what we espouse and all that. Though right. I, don't, I don't mind sharing views or anything. I just, I always like to be grounded in the text. I can't answer your question though with a quote from a, there's a Noth author uh, who, I think she passed away this year. Ursula Le Guin is her name. She wrote a lot right. of good science fiction. She's one of my favorites. I discovered her around the same point in my life when I discovered this. And she was, I think, pretty openly was probably a Marxist or something like that. Who knows if she ever said. But she wrote a novel called The Dispossessed, which is it basically like there's these two planets that orbit each other. One is very clearly just meant to be communist and one is very clearly just capitalist. It's like they're stand-ins. It's, you know, metaphorical. But yeah. there's a character who gives a speech in that book. And I still remember some of the words from it. But essentially, he ends it by saying... Like you have the most beautiful prison ever made, but you're still trapped in your prison and you'll die like buried with the things that you have. You'll die like I will die, but you will be covered. Basically, you will die covered in things and I will die alone, like in a room of nothing. Hmm. But but my life will have been worth far more than yours is basically the point of it. It's really well written. Um, And it, I think, can sum up you know, in a crude way, I guess, in a fiction kind of way, um, sort yeah. of the, the feeling that I get, which is I often feel trapped in by the things I own. And it's one of my least favorite things about myself. And I feel kind of like um, we have a family member who I've talked to this about before, who's he's complained, like, he feels like his a lot of his concerns are money related. And I, I don't know if mine are exactly money or budgetary, but it's like, it's feeling trapped by stuff. I can't mm. move because I have too much stuff. I can't. I have to take care of this car. I don't like. Like it's just yeah. always thinking about the stuff you have. Like how can I take care of my stuff or organize it or manage it or whatever. And yeah. it is. It is like a mental prison when your concerns are just all filtered through. How am I managing the things I have? How how do I manage the stuff I own? Yeah, yeah I think it's pretty taxing. I mean that you know to think that way. Oh, one hundred percent. My only advice would be get rid of the car as soon as you can. Just get just that's becoming popular. Yeah, just get rid of that car. Just start there. But you know, I know. Yeah, exactly. I know how you feel, and I feel like well, you gotta send me that quote because I would like to read it. 